This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I spoke with epidemiologist Professor Nancy Baxter. Nancy joined me to discuss the state of the COVID-19 pandemic. We also discuss other viruses of concern this winter, including influenza. Nancy explains the simple things that we can do to protect each other and the health system, which is currently under extreme strain. She also talks about the concerningly large number of people suffering from long COVID. Then I was joined by Carillo Gandner AC. Carillo is a Victorian cultural leader who has held many positions in the arts. He's also a philanthropist and previously he was cultural counsellor at the Australian Embassy in Beijing from 1985 to 1987. Carrillo joined me to talk about his new book, In Depth. It's called Dismal Diplomacy, Disposable Sovereignty, Our Problem with China and America. We discuss the recent history of Australia's very poor diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China. Carrillo talks about his time as cultural counsellor at the embassy in Beijing and what he observed and learned about China's culture, language, history and politics. And finally, we heard from Victorian Ombudsman Deborah Glass OBE. Deborah dialed in to talk about how human rights are protected and promoted in Victoria by the Ombudsman. She also talks about what her powers are in order to hold the state government and its various bodies and agencies to account. And it's my absolute pleasure to welcome onto the program Professor Nancy Baxter, who is head of the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. Nancy is a clinical epidemiologist. She also is a qualified general surgeon, which is also another impressive string to her bow, and a health services researcher. And we are going to be discussing the epidemiological picture of COVID-19 at the moment in the context of winter, as well as the rising number of deaths that we're seeing and a number of other circulating respiratory viruses, including the flu, which is causing uh, a huge concern for doctors and emergency physicians at the moment. So there's a whole range of issues, related issues going on. We're going to talk about those as well as vaccination for the flu and COVID, as well as those really sensible mitigations that we should all be doing to minimise transmission so that we can reduce the number of times people are becoming infected and reinfected as well as potentially getting long COVID or even dying. So I welcome Dr. Nancy Baxter now. Hi there, Nancy, and thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks for inviting me and good morning. It's great to have you on the program. And uh, I've certainly really valued your contributions throughout the pandemic. Have you been one of those very clear, measured people who speaks the truth and isn't afraid to say, you know, what the real situation is, as well as what might be at the moment politically unpalatable, which is minimising transmission of COVID-19. And I'm kind of surprised to be saying that, seeing as I thought it wasn't a controversial thing, especially in the arena of public health. I wondered, could you comment at the moment on transmission rates, especially because we don't really have an accurate picture 
given testing. But at the moment, we're hearing anecdotal reports from uh, respiratory physicians, for example, I've seen saying, you know, people are testing positive on day five or six on a rapid antigen test. Meanwhile, they've already had symptoms for five days, testing negative. A lot of people not going out and getting PCR tests. They're also less available. You know, what is the true picture of COVID-19 transmission if we don't have reliable testing and people taking up that testing? Well, you know, I, I think you bring up a, a really important point. Um, you know, Australia has had really world-class testing um, throughout the pandemic. So we've had a better understanding in Australia of where we're at than, than most countries uh, around the world. Um, but, you know, as with everywhere, with the high numbers of cases with Omicron, there, there have been challenges to testing. And now with the kind of overall decreased salience of COVID-19, the decreased kind of resonance with the population, I guess, and leadership being having less emphasis on COVID-19, despite the fact that it's everywhere. Um, you know, we're seeing decreases in testing, both in terms of PCR, but also in rapid antigen testing and importantly, reporting of rapid antigen testing. And I'll just give an example. You know, you see New South Wales um, yesterday had less than 5,000 cases, but still persistently has about 1,300 people in hospital. So it makes you think that now, um, unless, you know, completely different people are getting COVID, you know, sicker and older people getting COVID leading to hospitalizations, it makes you think that there's just less reporting. So you're having the same amount of serious disease, but less numbers of cases. So it, there's a disconnect there that makes you think we're really uh, under-reporting the cases. And that's important because if you don't know that you have COVID or you don't test for COVID and you don't do the steps that you need to take if you're positive for COVID, that is isolate yourself and not kind of allow yourself to transmit it more, um, then it's just going to kind of continue to fuel the outbreak that we have and lead to more cases and more people having COVID, getting serious consequences from COVID and long COVID than we need to have. Yeah, well, that's absolutely true. And I noticed that we also changed our close contact rules for isolation as well. So that people who happen to, you know, say their husband gets COVID, they are pretty sure they're going to get it themselves. And they are essentially allowed to go to work, um, having been a close contact with Omicron being so transmissible, likely getting it and then potentially spreading it into their workplace and to their contacts. I know anecdotally, a friend of mine decided to voluntarily stay at home and isolate anyway because she was sure that she would eventually get it. She did actually turn positive and she was glad that she'd actually protected her colleagues and those around her. But that's a very significant thing for an individual to have to take on against the system that we've created here, which seems to be quite minimal in terms of providing structures and rules to minimise transmission. Yeah, and even information and leadership. Mm. Um, so, you know, even if you don't have mandates and requirements, um, you can you can lead uh, and help people do what from a public health perspective is the right thing. You see all the photographs of politicians in groups, none of them are wearing masks. I mean, that sends a strong signal to people about what is important and what is necessary. But the household context, it's a great, it's a great point. You know, we know with Omicron being extremely transmissible that your risk of developing Omicron if someone in your household has it uh, is about 50%, at least 50%. And so if we're allowing those people to go back to work, uh, it means that we should be taking extreme precautions, you know, so the workplaces that have people who are household contacts likely should all be masked. 
both in terms of protecting other people from, you know, the wearer. So like decreasing the amount of COVID that in the air that the person who's a high risk contact uh, is putting into the air, but also protecting people from inhaling that. So everyone wearing um, masks in that workplace. Of course, we all know that there are no masks in the workplace. And it's really actually, as, as someone who tries to wear a mask, you know, I'm not perfect, but tries to wear a mask, uh, it's really difficult. It's really difficult to, to, to be swimming upstream all the time when no one in the workplace, no one in crowds are wearing masks. It's difficult to be the only one. I'm kind of better, better able to do that than most because I'm the lady on TV that lectures you. Um, <laughs> But, um, but, you know, it's, it's really, it's challenging even for me. So I can imagine, you know, someone going into the workplace, trying to do the right thing and really getting feedback that, that it's not, not kind of socially okay to be wearing a mask. Um, but that is what people who are household contacts should be doing because, you know, they have a really high risk of becoming positive. And as we know, you know, you, you can become infectious and, and infect other people before you even get symptoms. Um, so, uh, so it's a challenge. And, and what we saw in, in, in WA is when they relaxed household uh, restrictions on household contacts and relaxed, relaxed masking at the same time, they almost doubled their numbers of COVID-19. So clear impact of, of what we're doing from a requirement and um, mandate perspective and what has happened in terms of transmission. It's, a, it's cause and effect. Yeah. Well, we were told throughout the pandemic just how easy it is to wear a mask in the sense that it's a small imposition with a big return. It's something that can make a huge difference if we all wear a mask. Because, you know, obviously, if you've got double mask, you've got one person and another person both wearing masks, that protection is huge compared with just one person or even you yourself, Nancy, being the lone person. You know, it is pretty tough if there's very little ventilation or air purification going on and we're in winter at the moment. You point out about peer pressure. It's something that has come up for a lot of parents I've seen as well, saying that their children have felt really pressured by their peers and also their teachers to remove their masks for school photos, for, you know, just sitting in class at any point, for going outside if they still wanted to wear their mask. There's this sense that people who perhaps are more at risk at school or or the kids know that they have a family member at home who's at risk, they're putting themselves out there and doing something that they choose to do, but they're getting all this pressure. Don't do that. What kind of advice would you have to parents who whose kids are choosing to wear masks at school but are feeling that pressure? Well, that is a huge challenge. Um, and I think part of it is because everyone wants to forget the pandemic. Everyone wants to say the pandemic's over and we're moving forward uh, and our future is is going to be like 2019 was. Uh, and who wouldn't want to get rid of masks if we can, you know, if, if the pandemic is over? And that's certainly the message that's being sent to us. I think there was also a lot of um, thinking out there come now in retrospect a bit magical thinking that you know you'd get covid once and then you'd be done so you're vaccinated you get covid once you're done you're never going to get covid again but as we're all learning from either our own experience or our friends experience or from what we you know read in the paper um, people are getting covid again and again um, and so unless we want to get covid as frequently as the common cold with far greater implications ramifications long-term effects than the common cold we need to be doing more than we're doing to reduce transmission. And kids in school, yeah, it, it's really tough because, uh, you know, I, I recently heard from a friend that 
her child was wearing uh, a mask on the bus. She got a call from the teacher wondering if her daughter was having some problems with anxiety around COVID because she was, you know, insisting on wearing a mask on the bus. She wasn't insisting on wearing a mask in school just because, you know, she didn't want to essentially be, um, you know, singled out in a pariah in her classroom, but she wanted to wear it on the bus and the teacher was concerned about that. So, you know, I do think that we need a whole lot of education. It needs to start kind of at the top in terms of teachers kind of understanding that mask wearing actually is a reasonable thing for people to do and children shouldn't have to kind of tell you their whole sore story about what their concerns are in terms of you know potentially having someone who's immunocompromised in their family or just their own personal concerns mm. uh, they shouldn't have to kind of bear their souls to be able to wear a mask if that's what they want and i think that over the next few years we will adapt and we will accept mask wearing is more normal and and there's just just a period now where there's kind of this reaction to mask wearing as if kind of uh, you're you're just bringing the pandemic back into our lives and we don't don't want that to be back into our lives and that's that's just we've got to get over that because if we don't we're just kind of going to be allowing more transmission to happen than needs to happen and if more transmission happens than needs to happen we're going to have more sick people more people that are off work, so it's going to affect the economy, more people dying of COVID, and importantly, more long COVID, which is going to kind of result in just more disability in, in society than we need to. We are going to be sicker as a society than we need to be. Yeah, and I want to pick up on long COVID in a minute, but can I um, just jump in on mask wearing, I guess, and point out that healthcare workers have been wearing masks, N95 masks, for 12-hour shifts throughout the entire pandemic, and I know that pretty much all of them are still wearing them even by choice. So, you know, this isn't a big deal. Um, and I certainly have been wearing mine throughout the entire pandemic anyway. But, yeah, it is something that if you saw it role modelled by politicians and the people who are out there talking about it, it would certainly send a, a better message. And it's something that I guess I hoped that perhaps National Cabinet might consider if things got worse in midwinter, whether indoor mask wearing might be reintroduced, even if for a, a brief period. Do you think that that might be a potential solution if come the end of June and we're seeing flu continue to skyrocket, the subvariants of COVID that are more transmissible pick up? Do you think that that might be a potential option to minimise transmission? Yeah, well, I think that what would be the most reasonable thing for our leaders to do is to be realistic with people about what's happening with COVID, how we actually can't predict what's going to happen with COVID in the near future. We can hope that what's going to happen is over time, you know, there'll be less and less peaks of COVID because more and more people will have these layers of immunity to COVID. So there'll be less of an impact of COVID on our lives over time and that that'll happen in a very short period of time. So we can hope for that. Uh, but right now we're planning for that. And, and that's problematic, right? We're hoping for the best and planning for the best. And what we need to do is at least have some plan for something other than the best to happen. And that's what we're seeing right now, actually, is, is that this is worse than what we had planned for. So, you know, what I think leaders need to do is to need to be very clear about the parameters uh, at which time, you know, to be clear that masks are recommended. And if masks are recommended, that means our leaders should be using them more. That's number one. 
And then they should be very upfront about when masks will be reintroduced as required, as mandatory, because we've seen that mandatory requirements of masks have a massive impact on use of masks. And so there may be times in the future, and this winter may well be one, when the best thing for our healthcare system, the best thing for us as a society is to mandate masks again. And so I think our leaders need to be very clear about that. I'm quite concerned that the politics being what they are, that that, that is not something that at least our local politicians are going to be able to do, but that is surely what is needed. Absolutely. And if we put things into a bit of perspective, one of the metrics that is undeniable although Scott Morrison tried to undermine it during the election campaign, were the death statistics of people dying from COVID-19. He was trying to suggest that people were really not dying from COVID-19, that it wasn't the main factor in their death. This was debunked by people who know how the statistics are actually defined by the ABS and by doctors who have to sign the death certificates. But it is something that was concerning to me to see this undermining of the severity of the, the number of deaths we're seeing. To give listeners an idea, for June, so in the last six days, as of yesterday, we've seen 234 deaths in Australia. And we've also seen for the whole month of May, just under 1,300 deaths in Australia. So if we're thinking about that level of death in Australia, that is much more than the flu. It's throughout the year. It's not seasonal. And um, we're on track to see a huge number at the end of the year. Yeah, what are your reflections on the death statistics as they stand in relation to the rest of the world and what you think potentially Australians' expectations are of death? Well, I, I would say, first of all, in terms of death from COVID, Australia has really been spared a lot of what many other countries around the globe have suffered. And that is because of, you know, the willingness of Australians to abide by a lot of very difficult and severe restrictions um, to be able to keep COVID largely out for two years while we got everyone vaccinated. So, so kudos to all Australians for making that happen. But, you know, I do think that we are resting on our laurels in terms of our past performance and our past performance is clearly not going to predict our future performance because everything changed with Omicron and with loosening of all restrictions. I mean, we essentially have no restrictions uh, right now in terms of transmission other than requiring people to isolate if they have COVID. So, you know, we should we should kind of look at our performance in terms of mortality from kind of the start of this year as very separate and um, uh, uh, isolated from our 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 performance before that. And what I would say is right now we could be performing much better. We're still doing better than some other countries because we have such a high vaccination rate, again, because of uh, the Australian people really going out and getting there and getting vaccinated. But uh, but it could be lower and it's not it's not certainly the best performance anywhere in terms of mortality. And, um, you know, the, this kind of argument that that people are dying with and not of COVID, you know, that has been debunked, both in terms of, as you said, how mortality is recorded by physicians on death certificates. So, you know, the underlying cause of death 
has been COVID in most of these cases of people dying with COVID. They have died of COVID. And as you also said, the Australian Bureau of Statistics looks at something called the expected number of people dying in a given time period and looks at whether the rates are over expected. This isn't something new. This is something that the Australian Bureau of Statistics has always done. And what they found is for January and February, which are the most recent dates available, the actual observed deaths, the number of deaths we had overall, not just from COVID overall, was 20% higher than would be expected in a usual year. Uh, and that's because of COVID. So COVID now has become one of the leading deaths of Australians. So this is not something you can explain away by saying they're dying with COVID. You know, 20% more deaths in Australia during this time of COVID. So it's because of COVID. Then there's the argument that these are old people. So recently I saw in the paper a prominent physician saying that, you know, the analogy of, uh, you know, uh, this being similar to a plane crashing uh, and people dying in a plane crash every two or three days, the number of people dying in Australia, we shouldn't make that analogy because in a plane you have people of a range of ages, including babies and young people, whereas these are all older people or people with comorbid conditions. You know, I, I think that is just a horrific way to think about this because, you know, if we had a, a group of retirees in a plane and the plane crashed, wouldn't we still care? You know, so so I think yeah. that these are generally older people or people who are sick. But honestly, those are Australians, too. Those are our loved ones. Those those are sometimes us. Uh, and so we, we should definitely care. The other thing is it's not just death from COVID. It's kind of the overwhelming of our healthcare system as well as long COVID. So, so I do think this trying to kind of say we don't need to worry about it because the people who are dying are older and maybe some of them, you know, COVID is just kind of a, uh, a passenger and not the cause of the death. I just think that that, that is, is unhelpful. And at, at the best you can say about that, it's unhelpful. And the worst you can say is that it's brazenly political at, and is actually harmful. Very true. And when we did have more transparency from some of the state health authorities, especially when they were tweeting out the daily figures and giving us an idea of the people who were dying with their age, uh, especially in New South Wales, how many vaccinations they'd had. We know those statistics uh, when they were provided. We saw a number of people who had had their booster doses, who might have even been eligible for a fourth dose because they were immunocompromised, also dying from COVID. So I think it's important to say that vaccines are vital and they work, but a lot of the people might also assume, well, these people are just people who chose not to be vaccinated. Yeah, well, you know, I think that the fact that the um, governments are not publishing that data is for several reasons. One, because almost everybody is vaccinated and many of the older folks are boosted as well. You know, a, a, a significant percentage of people dying of COVID have been vaccinated. Now, when you look at it based on the proportions, you're, you're much less likely to die of COVID if you've been vaccinated and less likely to die again if you've been boosted. But because of the fact that, you know, a number of people are dying who've had the vaccine and booster, anti-vaxxers are actually using that as information to support their anti-vaxxer stance to say that this proves that vaccines don't work. So I think that's part of why governments aren't focusing on that anymore is because it's kind of fueling this misinformation that anti-vaxxers are putting out there to support their position. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I can kind of understand where they're coming from there. But yes, indeed, vaccines are not perfect. And you know, I, I think most people in government did not try to 
present them as perfect. But uh, when we had such, you know, such great vaccines, particularly with the mRNA vaccines, so so effective, I think we were hoping that that they would be the the solution, the entire solution to to COVID. Um, but now, sadly, it's clear they're not. Both in terms of folks dying from COVID, but also importantly from long COVID. Yeah, and in terms of vaccination, to close out that loop. I noted that with the booster doses, or we should probably call them third doses now because they're recommended for everyone to get their third dose. Could you explain to people who may be holding out, there is one third of eligible adults who have not yet had their third dose, why it's so vital to get it with Omicron circulating? Why is that third dose going to tip you over the line and give you better protection? So I, I think there are a few things. Um, first, you know, there, there are some other vaccines that you need three doses for to get your immunity to, to the level, uh, optimal level from, from vaccines. And I think long-term, COVID's going to be one of those, that the optimal course is three times. We didn't know that at the beginning, but I, I think in the future, we'll be thinking of this as a three-dose vaccine, not a two-dose vaccine. So, that, so that's just putting it out there. I mean, there are some vaccines that are like this. You know, some shots you only need one of, some shots you need three of. COVID is going to be one that even just to get the best immunity you can, you're going to need three. But then you have waning immunity, so decreasing immunity. So we know over time, vaccines, some vaccines can, uh, the immunity to disease can decrease with time and you need boosters. So so we've had boosters in the past uh, for vaccines like like tetanus, things like that, you need, you need to have have them done on a regular basis. And COVID is one of those. Our immunity does wane over time. Fortunately, it doesn't wane that much. It doesn't decrease that much for hospitalization and death, but it decreases a bit. Um, and when you're dealing with Omicron, when you have so many people getting Omicron, even if it decreases just a bit, a small percentage, because so many people are getting it, it means there's a lot more hospitalizations and a lot more deaths. So, um, you know, then it's really important at the population level, at kind of trying to manage our healthcare system level, that we have as many people with this maximum protection as well. Because even if you increase, you know, hospitalization rates by, you know, only 5%, so you you have many, many more people with Omicron, you've protected them largely with vaccination, but some people still end up becoming quite sick. Even if you uh, you increase the number of sick people that need hospitalization by a much smaller percent than the total percentage getting COVID, it still is enough to potentially overwhelm the healthcare system. So if you can mitigate that by getting that booster in, then that is extremely important. Then finally, you know, Omicron isn't COVID 1.0. Part of how Omicron, a large part of, uh, of how Omicron is able to be so much more transmissible is that it is able to evade our immunity, both immunity from having had COVID before and immunity from vaccination. And so, so because of that, it, our vaccines do have a little less protection against hospitalization and serious illness. They still do very well, but they have a little less protection so than, than with COVID 1.0 that the vaccines were designed for. So that means that we really need to make sure that everyone has the maximum immunity, so i.e. has that booster, to be able to really minimize the impact of COVID on our healthcare systems and death from COVID. That's such a great point because we're hearing so many reports of EDs 
emergency departments being overwhelmed at the moment and people stuck in ED waiting to go up to a ward because there aren't beds available for them. So we're way past capacity. If we think about the subvariants that are becoming a concern and are starting to grow at lower but still concerning levels, we know of the BA4 and BA5 subvariants of Omicron because we've seen wastewater detections of them in some of the eastern metropolitan areas as well as the city of Greater Geelong, more recently being a key area where it's um, had high detections. Is that a concern at the moment, given that those subvariants seem to have the ability to evade vaccines more than even the earlier subvariants of Omicron? Yeah, so, you know, we had the original peak of Omicron, which was BA1. So it's the, the first, first type of Omicron that really, really became a, a major global health issue. And then we subsequently had BA2. So that's the cousin of, of the original Omicron, all in the Omicron family. And that's where we saw the more recent kind of peak of cases that, um, you know, about uh, over the past couple of months. Not as high, but definitely enough to really stress the healthcare system and enough to mean a lot of sick people. And so now we're kind of coming, we were coming down from that, um, still with a high number of cases, but coming down from the peak. Uh, and now we we have kind of BA5, four and five starting to be present in Australia. You know, last I saw about 7% of specimens that have been evaluated in Australia are now BA5. And that is likely to mean that there'll be a transmission driver, there'll be a driver of increased transmission in Australia over the winter. We'll have a number of people who have relatively high amounts of immunity from transmission because they've had COVID recently. But when you think of that huge peak of people who had COVID over the Christmas holidays, you know, their immunity has waned from that to the point where they're susceptible to getting this BA5 as well. So, you know, you had people who had, were boosted, people who had um, COVID, you know, the immunity to transmission is waning. So, um, so they're at risk from BA5. So the expectation I have is that we certainly will not have another decline. We will not have a major decline in COVID cases over winter. We're going to have a persistently high amount of COVID cases, and we may even have another peak. I think we, we have to, that remains to be seen. But, you know, certainly what we're going to have is over winter, a persistently high number of cases. We're not going to get down to like a very, very few cases. Uh, and the challenge there is even if the cases are, are not peaking, we have kind of these two respiratory outbreaks at the same time. So we have COVID and we have the flu. We have a healthcare system that's already under um, extreme strain. So we're putting the burden of both, um, you know, high baseline number of cases of COVID and then an outbreak of the flu. And we create a system where it's going to be extraordinarily challenging for um, nurses, physicians, paramedics to actually provide the care that, that should, they should be able to provide, as well as our GPs, right? So our GPs, backbone of this system, a lot of people sick from COVID don't require hospitalization. We think about hospitals a lot, but, you know, the GPs are taking care of a lot of people. They're trying to get treatment to people who need it. Remember, there we have some effective treatments for people if they're diagnosed with COVID and treatment gets to them within five days. You know, we, we're relying on GPs to do that. We're relying on GPs to help people cope with 
so-called mild COVID, which can actually make you feel pretty sick, but you don't require hospitalization. We're, we're asking GPs to manage that. We're asking GPs to do a lot in a season where they're already usually pretty overwhelmed. So this is a real tax on the healthcare system right now, and I think we'll continue over the winter. Yeah, and you do mention there the antivirals. I know Paxlovid is one that's been particularly effective, and we've seen healthcare professionals confirm that it's a quite difficult to get into a GP, especially if you happen to get stuck over the weekend needing to access it, and also that the supplies seem to be really sparse and hard to find in terms of which chemists might have any stock near you, especially if you're living in a regional or rural area. Are you concerned about the access to antivirals and monoclonal antibodies for these people who are more at risk? Do you think that that is a bit of an issue if we're having such high levels of transmission, there surely are quite a number of people eligible. Do you think they're able to access it enough? And is this an area government might intervene? It's hard for me to believe that everyone who could benefit from the antivirals is being offered them. I, I think that's not kind of something that, that's possible given the number of in the current system and with the current support. I'm also quite concerned that the delivery that we currently have of antivirals is not being done in an equitable way. We know that this pandemic has been felt inequitably throughout society, that you know early on the people that were getting it, the people that were dying of it were people who were essential workers, you know, in addition to our, our health workers, these are people who generally work in lower paying jobs, people who in, in uh, lower socioeconomic status, uh, living in larger households, people that have to work. Um, so these are the people that were bearing the brunt of the pandemic before vaccination. And now they're bearing the brunt of the pandemic because of, you know, challenges with, uh, again, having to go to work, challenges with not being able to adequately access treatments if they meet the high-risk criteria. So, so it's a big concern of mine that, you know, we know we have some effective therapy. How are we supporting GPs to get it out there? Like just, this, this is new treatment. Uh, it's um, challenging in that people have to be identified very quickly. They have to be started on treatment very quickly. This is an entirely new new approach to COVID. Uh, it's something that we're uh, saying that GPs should do. And there is some support for GPs. It's not like there's no support, but there's just not enough support to make sure this is going to happen for every patient. Yeah. Yeah. I've certainly heard people say that they're eligible, but their GP just said, no, you'll be fine. <laughs> Don't worry, which is kind of concerning as well. So it definitely seems that there's a whole range of areas that could be improved. Let's talk about long COVID because I definitely don't want to miss that. And it's something that I um, I spoke with Brendan Crabb about a little while ago. And, you know, he had expressed his concerns that we're really not discussing or up until this point have not been discussing the impact of long COVID, especially given the numbers of potential long COVID cases based on transmission levels. So if you have a high number of cases, you have an even higher likelihood of a, a number of people getting long COVID. So I wonder if we're seeing reinfections as well, and perhaps people getting infected two or three times, 
does that also increase the chance of long COVID? And what are you hearing in terms of the situation of long COVID in Australia? Because we are now finally seeing some media reports saying that GPs are being inundated with people having post-viral syndromes and not really knowing what to do about the situation and, and the whole spectrum of symptoms that it brings up. So, you know, long COVID is the inconvenient truth for people who want to change any focus from transmission of COVID. Because as you said, if you have widespread COVID, it means you're going to have higher rates of long COVID than you need to have. And uh, I think, again, similar to to kind of the serious illness and death from COVID, Australia has largely fortunately been spared long COVID because we haven't had a lot of transmission prior to 2022. And so now, now you're seeing it. So post-viral syndromes, they have occurred in the past. They're, they're, they do occur with things like the flu, but it just seems the, the proportion of people who suffer from long COVID, um, it's more than post-viral symptoms from many other diseases. Uh, and it's something that is real, but because we've had, we haven't had so much COVID in Australia till now, it's not been as widely acknowledged or recognized, but we are only going to see more of it. Uh, I think we are just developing an understanding of long COVID after repeated infections. Um, you, your risk of long COVID and your risk of dying of long COVID is less uh, if you've been vaccinated, but vaccinate, vaccinations don't eliminate it entirely. And we know that long COVID, most people don't get it, but it is quite common. People will have lasting symptoms of COVID, but it will have an impact on them for a prolonged period of time. It's something that we know it's difficult to to treat because many of the symptoms have no easy treatment. And that's been really challenging word worldwide. It was challenging in terms of even recognizing the diagnosis. It was denied uh, by a lot of you know, physicians for a long period of time. And it was actually survivors of COVID that forced this to be recognized. And now clearly it is recognized and accepted. You know, many countries have set up clinics for long COVID and now South Australia has set up clinics for long COVID. Certainly, I think things like that need to happen because we have so many people who are going to be presenting with long-term symptoms related to the disease. And uh, we definitely need to improve the resources and education for GPs. So, you know, long COVID clinics would, should be for the people with most severe long COVID, but many people will have mild long COVID. And so we need to increase the capacity and resources of our general practitioners to actually be able to manage it well. So we will be seeing more and more of this in Australia. And I, honestly, I think that that's what's going to turn the tide in terms of things like mask wearing and uh, our tolerance of, of transmission uh, and turn the tide in terms of society wanting to do more. I think we are going to see more and more, you know, say in schools, star athletes that suddenly have their athletic career completely disrupted because they're unable to do their usual activities uh, because they have long COVID. We're going to see more working adults and know of more working adults who've had to take prolonged time off work because they just haven't been able to get back to work because of long COVID. We're going to see the social and economic impacts of long COVID. I wish it would happen before, but I think that is when the tide is going to turn in terms of us as a society deciding that COVID is remaining. It continues to be a public health problem that we need a response to. We can live with COVID by ignoring it. 
but we will not live well with COVID if we ignore it. We need to adapt to it and we need to do more than nothing to manage transmission. I couldn't agree more, Nancy. And we haven't touched much on clean air and ventilation and air purifiers, but I know that's another part of the vaccines plus mitigation picture, which is quite easy to implement. I really appreciate your time today. I know you've got to run off. So uh, thank you so much for taking the time to take us through these key issues. It's been um, you know, very clarifying and uh, great to hear the evidence behind what we're hearing. So I really appreciate it. Yeah. And, and you know, what I, I want to um, kind of emphasize to listeners is that, you know, we don't need to be perfect. And mm. our, the things that we put in place to help control uh, our spread of COVID, it do, they don't need to be perfect to have an impact. So when people say, oh, you, you know, if you don't wear masks 100% of the time, it's not worth it, or if masks aren't 100% effective, or, you know, if ventilation isn't 100% effective, you know, making sure you have clean air indoors isn't worth it, you know, if we reduce COVID by, you know, 10%, that's one in 10 people who don't get COVID. That's one in 10 people that don't die of COVID. That's one in 10 people who don't get hospitalized from COVID. And that's one in 10 people that don't get long COVID. And one in 10 is a significant number of people. So I think even small things that we do that reduce our chance of getting COVID or our chance of transmitting COVID, if we all did them, it would have a significant and meaningful impact that would have a meaningful impact on people's lives. So, you know, what I want to encourage people who are listening is not to get discouraged. Things are improving overall in terms of us having a vaccinated population. We have protected ourselves through everything that Australians have done, but it the pandemic is not over and doing what we can to try and control transmission will make a difference. And, and you know, don't listen to the people talking about the fact that, that we can just get back to living as normal. If we do, we just won't live well. Very well said, Nancy, and um, thanks for your time today. I've been speaking with Professor Nancy Baxter. She's an epidemiologist and she's also the head of the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. And we've just been discussing COVID-19 flu and uh, the very vital importance of mitigating and minimising transmission. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. And you are tuned in to 3RRR FM. This show is Uncommon Sense and it's my great pleasure and honour to welcome onto the program Carillo Gantner AC. Now, Carillo has a great depth and breadth of experience in the arts as well as many touch points with China, of which we are going to be discussing today. He was the founding director of the Playbox Theatre Company, which is now known as the Malthouse Theatre in Melbourne. He was also its artistic director between 76 and 84, as well as between 88 and 93. He was also cultural counsellor at the Australian Embassy in Beijing in 1985 all the way through to 1987 and Carrillo has served as chair of the Sydney Maya Fund, president of the Maya Foundation, chair of AsiaLink at Melbourne University, president of the Arts Centre in Melbourne and many, many other brilliant arts organisations that I, I won't get a chance to mention but perhaps Carrillo will in our chat. 
And uh, he was also awarded, as you might be able to tell, uh, a Companion of the Order of Australia in 2019 for services to the Performing and Visual Arts and to Australia-Asia Cultural Exchange. He has many other honorary biographical details to his name, but uh, I won't get to them all, but I do want to say just how much I'm excited to speak with Carrillo now about his new book, Dismal Diplomacy, Disposable Sovereignty, Our Problem with China and America, which has already been released through Monash University Publishing via their In the National Interest series. And I welcome Carrillo now. Hi there, Carrillo, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. After that uh, introduction, I can retire now. Yeah, well, by the sounds of it, you're already partially retired, but still doing plenty of good work, including this very interesting piece of writing. Thank you. Well, it it started life as the Kidman Lecture at the University of Adelaide last year. And that was an hour lecture. It was about 6,000 words. And then Monash University Press said, if you'd add another 10,000, uh, we'll publish it in our National Interest series. So so I did that, and it was completed late last year. So the times change, and, and of course, the relationship with China changes every second day. But, but the principles involved with it are have not changed. It, it basically says that we haven't handled the China relationship well, and has a few pointers on how we might handle it better. Well, I think it's probably an understatement in a way that we haven't um, haven't been managing it well. Just how embarrassing it is, the types of diplomacy, quote unquote, that Australian politicians especially have been deploying, because it really has been pretty much just megaphone diplomacy. Absolutely right. And it's to be fair, it's not the diplomats, it's the politicians. They discovered only in the last six or seven years, we had 40 years since the Whitlam diplomatic recognition of the People's Republic of China at the end of 1972. One of the very first major things that Gough Whitlam did when he became prime minister. And we've had 40 years of constructive, increasingly beneficial relations with China, beneficial in a whole host of aspects, but particularly, of course, commercially. Uh, Australia went through recessions that other parts of the world were suffering, we sort of cruised through them without going into recession because of the strength of the relationship. And then suddenly uh, in Malcolm Turnbull's prime ministership and then accentuated in the Morrison period, the relationship turned very sour. It did so when we attached ourselves far too closely to Mr. Trump And when he suddenly changed the American relationship with China from a sort of strategic partnership to a, uh, I've forgotten the vocabulary, but a strategic uh, adversary sort of position, we went along with him. Uh, You'll remember that Morrison was fated at a uh, a state dinner at the White House. And uh, I would say that was the most expensive dinner that any Australian has ever had, because following that, when we too suddenly decided that China was the enemy and we started shouting at them and pointing our finger at them and telling them what they were doing wrong in the world, it became a very expensive uh, uh, dinner when when our wine exports were suddenly cancelled, a billion dollars worth of wine, our barley, 
Uh, and the irony of, of these was that, of course, who, who took up those contracts? Our great allies, the Americans, you know, and Canadians started selling all their barley to China uh, and their wine, as did the New Zealanders. So everyone else has sort of trampled over us in our stupidity to take up those markets that we lost. It's not been beneficial either in an, an economic or in an educational or a cultural or many dimensions to the relationship that we have, we have lost yeah. out on. Well, you pointed out in the book that we do seem hung up on our national interest and our especially national security interests, but you question, well, what about our economic interests? Doesn't that get consideration, especially given this ongoing issue around trade? You know, What about the livelihoods of Australians who are affected by our exports? Yes, and a lot of that has been hidden by COVID, so it's very blurry you know, what we've lost and what we haven't lost. And of course, iron ore has continued to go from the Pilbara to China in vast quantities and at an increased price. Uh, and that has hidden the cost. But for many people around Australia, in the wine industry, in the, in the farming industry, in, in, in the fishing industry, Australian lobsters were suddenly cut out, but they're all having... Bo- China's not suffering from lack of lobster, <laughs> they're all, they're all uh, eating Boston Maine lobsters now. But our fishermen have, have suffered in Tasmania and Western Australia. And we've lost uh, Chinese students, we've lost Chinese tourism. Now, yes, COVID put a, a stop to that, but we haven't gone out of our way to uh, bring them back again. And the Chinese government has discouraging them from coming here because they say, you know, this is not no longer a welcoming country for for Chinese students. Yeah. Other countries who have a relationship with China and a, a multifaceted one like we do, they have continued to have that relationship, uh, even though the issues that we say we're concerned about, whether they're human rights uh, whether the South China Sea, whether it's COVID and Wuhan, whatever it is, they manage to continue to have a relationship. They haven't had all ministerial contacts shut down. They haven't had trade sanctions. So what are they doing that we're not doing? Or rather, what are we doing that they're not doing? It's behaving as I say in the book, I call us the American shoeshine boy in the South Pacific. I mean, we have been hectoring the Chinese. We've been telling them what's wrong with their system, what's wrong with their behavior, not trying to to think as you do in any relationship, what does the other person want? How can we meet that without sacrificing our own personal values? And we don't have to. New Zealand hasn't, Japan hasn't, Singapore hasn't, Indonesia hasn't. All of these countries manage their relationship with China in a much more equitable manner. Now, that doesn't mean they agree with everything China does, because clearly we don't. But they don't shout at them in public. Uh, a lot of what's happened in recent years has been done for domestic consumption. The government decided that there were votes to be had in standing up for our values and uh, the sort of thing that Morrison said we are not going to be uh, bullied by the Chinese. 
you can say the same thing, but you can do it diplomatically and quietly behind the scenes rather than doing it through the Australian media and telling the Chinese what's wrong with them. And we've made, I think, futile gestures, not allowing our diplomats to go to the Winter Games. What did that achieve? didn't stop the games. It didn't help Australia. Yes, you can say we don't want ministerial visits if you want to, but, but our diplomats in Beijing, it's their job to understand what's happening in China. And the Winter Games are an important uh, international event. Uh, the fact that you know, the Australian ambassador, Graham Fletcher, was not allowed to go and watch a ski race uh, didn't really achieve anything except that uh, the government here somehow thought it would, would score points. Curiously, or rather ironically, in, in the last election, of course, what happened was that the Chinese-Australian community, of which there are probably 1.3 or 4 million now, they turned away from the government uh, because they were being attacked both verbally and occasionally in, in person and criticized uh, for having so-called divided loyalties, which is absolute rubbish. And they turned off the government. So it, it backfired. But I'm sure a lot of it was, was done at the time for what they thought was political gain in Australia. Yes, and you point out it was not just for domestic consumption, as in the electorate, but also it was about jockeying for leadership positions. And yes, I think I think a lot of it, a lot of it was was. I mean, you have to remember that that Morrison only had a one seat majority. Yep. Uh, and within that majority, he was dependent on the Nationals, and and the far right of the Nationals gets a bit loony at times. So he couldn't afford to lose one of them. So whenever Dutton said something outrageous and, and thoroughly objectionable in my view, you know, like we need to prepare for war with China. I mean, stupid stuff, stupid stuff. Morrison had to either say something even one step further, you know, to the right, or at least show that he was equally, uh, you know, hairy-chested and, and gung-ho. Otherwise, he, would, he could have lost one or two votes in the nationals, and that would have been his majority as leader, and then effectively the, the government's majority. And then even, even Josh Frydenberg got in on the act. Uh, we signed the free trade agreement with China in 2015. That's not very long ago. And at the time, this was the government's you know, greatest achievement, and it was going to build on our relationship with China and, and lead to continuing Australian prosperity. And yet, when that was tested a couple of years later, or a few years later, three years later, by the Chinese dairy company, Mengnio, which is a publicly listed company listed in, on the Chinese stock market and in Hong Kong, they wanted to buy the dairy assets of a that were owned by a Japanese company. And the Foreign Investment Review Board said that's perfectly all right. There's no strategic interest involved here. And so they cleared it and, and the security people cleared it. But Frydenberg blocked it on what he said were national security grounds, which was absolute rubbish. A, it was 
It was in contradiction to the terms of the free trade agreement which we had signed. But B, I think it was it was Josh trying to show his hairy chest um, and that I can be strong on China too, chasing those illusory votes, whether they were in outback Queensland or in wherever. It just made made us foolish, I think, and and it actually contradicted our stated values of being a free trade country. Yeah. And I mean, you say you, you reference the, the China Free Trade Agreement. I mean, it does actually feel like a world away uh, such a long time ago, given where we are currently at in our relationship with China. And it made me think just how far it must seem to you um, how far, how many worlds away is it when you were over in China and you know, first engaging with China through the arts? That must be, you know, almost feel like it's two millennia well, I first away. I went to China in, in February 77. And then I took the first Australian theatre group back there in 78. And then in 79, we presented a Chinese puppet company at the Playbox Theatre. And because that was so successful, we were asked to tour the Nanjing Acrobatic Troupe in 1980 which we did nationally, and then the Jiangsu Peking Opera Group. Uh, those two were both from Jiangsu province. Nanjing was the capital of Jiangsu because Victoria and Jiangsu had the first of the sister state relationships that a liberal premier, Dick Hamer, Sir Rupert Hamer, had established um, because he could see the potential in all its dimensions of having good relations with China. Yes, and then I went myself in the mid-80s as cultural counsellor at the embassy. It is uh, light years away, and and it was still going well until about 2017, when suddenly it all it all fell in a heap. Uh, and if you if you look at the chronology, it's us following Donald Trump down a very deep wombat hole. Um, and we now have to work out how to get ourselves out of there as quickly, but without, I mean, I'm sure Dutton is waiting to pounce the moment the Labor government does something that says, well, let's improve the relationship. He'll say appeasement, appeasement, and, and you know, panda huggers, as I was called once in that Clive Hamilton book, why? Because I'd supported the Chinese National Ballet to come to Australia. Terrible. It got stupid um, and destructive, destructive of our economic interest, of people's jobs in Australia, of our uh, relationships with our region. I mean, China is the biggest power in our region, and it's not going to go away just because we don't happen to think that their form of government is suitable for us. But, but what we have to do is learn how to be respectful to the power that they have, because they are a superpower now. I mean, had Mr. Dutton taken us to war with China, it would have been over in about 30 seconds. Um, you know, it just seemed, just seemed such a sort of obscenely comical almost gesture. But he seemed to think that that, that would play well in the Australian electorate. Uh, but if people thought about it for... A minute they would have realized it was stupid. Now, big powers behave badly. We should get used to that. The Americans have behaved appallingly, yeah. you know, since they've been a superpower. They've taken us to several wars that I think Australia should not have been in. Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, 
They're not our wars. And frankly, neither is Taiwan. And if I can remind your listeners that in 1972, when Gough did recognize the People's Republic, Gough recognized that Taiwan was a part of China. We have a one-China policy. So why would we think of going to war in contradiction of our own policy? It'd be like the Chinese saying, well, the Tasmanians don't like uh, the Australian government uh, and they want to rule themselves differently. So we'll go in to defend the Tasmanians uh, against the Australian government. It's just not on. It's yeah. not legal. It's not correct. And it's it contradicts our own government's position. Now, no Australian government since Gough in 72 has renounced the one China policy that we signed up to. No one has said we don't accept that anymore. Why? Because it's not in our national interest to do so. Now, it doesn't mean we agree with everything the People's Republic of China does. It doesn't mean that we want that particular form of government. But it does mean that we have to respect the fact that that's the kind of government that China has chosen for itself. And our shouting at them isn't going to change that. Some of the the points you make, especially about your time living in Beijing and getting to know the Chinese people through their culture, language, history, politics, you know, these areas you said were very close to political ideology and that you really, in your role at the embassy in Beijing, you know, you picked up on some of the changes in politics by taking note of what was happening in the cultural sphere and you compare culture in China to Australia saying that perhaps in Australia many people still seem to think culture is what you do on a Saturday night. But it was really quite striking to me as someone who is fairly aware of Chinese culture, language and history. To me, this is a kind of obvious statement, but I think to others who don't have that experience, perhaps it isn't. And so that section in in the essay in your book about China and just how crucial its history, culture and, and language is to understanding and providing a foundation of respect between nations. I feel that that is something that's just so grossly missing now. And I wonder, do you think it was present then? Was the way that Australia conducted themselves, you know, the ambassadors, cultural counsellors like yourself, was there a different approach to China and trying to understand them and their difference in an open-minded, empathetic way? By and large, the professional diplomatic staff that I've dealt with over 30, 40 years have understood that because they go to China, they want to be posted in China, they find it an enthralling country with a with a rich, very rich history. I mean, we think of English history and all the kings and queens and changes from the Tudors to the Spencers to the Windsors, and the Chinese have gone through the same sort of cycles of, of dynasties that generally last a few hundred years. All of that is is of fascination to the professional diplomats who are there. Now, I think on the street in Australia, that stuff, uh, if I can call it that, is not of, of interest. And, and even to our political class, 
very few of them are genuinely interested in China. They see the relationship in transactional terms. How many million tons of iron ore did we sell? How many, uh, you know, whatevers uh, do we buy? How many widgets do we buy? What is the trade balance? They don't think about China's history. They certainly don't think about the complexity of its language, of its rich art scene in performing arts, in classical painting, in the theatre, which I was always interested in. And they don't think of the, the subtleties of that. And, and the, I mean, they don't, they don't care. And they don't have to, but they have to recognize that the Chinese people, uh, even if they don't like the, the Chinese government, it doesn't mean that the Chinese people always like the Chinese government, just as we don't always like our government, uh, as we've just shown. And yet we have to, I think, be respectful and interested in the differences. We do underestimate culture in this country. I mean, our politicians tend to think of the arts, as I call it, you know, what you do on Saturday night, as either about celebrity, uh, whether it's Kate Blanchett or whatever the other, you know, movie star of the moment may be, or about sort of some left-wing cabal of potsterers, and that is peripheral. And yet, as the pandemic proved, when people were locked up in their homes, what did they turn to? They turned to the arts, they turned to music, they turned to Netflix telling stories, they turned to reading and books and culture, they turned to all the aspects of our culture that enrich their lives and, and basically that keep us sane and that, and that teach us about ourselves, both individually, how do I live, how do I behave, how do I interact with my, my spouse and my children and my community and my wider society. That's what the arts do. And we knew that in the pandemic, but it tends not to be reflected in how our political class behave. And they also don't think of the extraordinary economic impact that the arts and culture have in this country, let alone China, through not just the, you know, the publishing industry or the television industry or the movie industry, but in terms of of fashion. Fashion is, is an aspect of cultural development. Sport is an aspect of our Australian culture. I mean, I used to say I was the Minister for Sport at our embassy because sport is a, is a very strong part of the Australian cultural mix. And understanding who we are and telling our own stories rather than just watching international, you know, American blockbusters and, and uh, soap operas uh, is really important because we're, we're a country of migrants. We're building our own culture, uh, which has this extraordinary rich base of indigenous history and culture on which we're all standing. And how we bring those things together is not only a, a rich emotional and historical source of our being, but it also has a profound economic impact on everything we do. Design is another aspect. And so I felt myself fortunate because I was learning all the time 
in China that all those aspects and language, the, the complexities of their language. My father-in-law was a scholar and a writer and a playwright. I was struggling to know a thousand Chinese characters when I was there, and I've forgotten 995 of them uh, since I was living there and trying to force myself to come to grips with this. But he probably knew 30 or 40,000 characters and long-form characters so that they're pictograms where in one character that might have 16 or 18 brushstrokes, you know, you're conveying a whole world of meaning that, that we might take, you know, 10 words to describe. And the other thing and the point I make is that culture in China is very close to ideology. That's why the Chinese treat their culture with such respect, because they know that artists have a very powerful voice and that they can influence a wider community, both directly uh, and indirectly through the stories they tell and the lifestyle they lead. So I always say that uh, censorship of the arts in China, which, which happens quite strongly, and particularly at the moment under the current regime, uh, you know, it's very tightly controlled. It acknowledges that the arts actually have a real power in the society uh, that we tend not to give them here. We, we think of them as peripheral and expendable. So, so po our politicians don't, in my view, give the arts the respect that they are due and, and of course, the financial support. Yeah. And you point out as well in this essay that essentially the links that were established between China and Australia, especially the cultural links, the intellectual links between universities and research centres, these have all been very much undermined by the previous Morrison government. For example, you point out their defunding and removal of the tax-deductible gift recipient status of independent think tank China Matters. I actually, you know, thought they had kind of gone really quiet and now I know why. It, it's bizarre. They, yeah. they didn't want alternative voices. I mean, we criticised the Chinese for stifling uh, independent voices, but we were doing it here. We were putting pressure on our academics in the universities not to publish material that, that wasn't in line with our own government's sort of official position. That's outrageous. You mentioned there about respect and China's great respect for culture and obviously its ties to politics and ideology. One thing that you also point out, uh, especially around the theme of respect, is that what we seem not to understand, and this is a quote from you, is China's demand for respect as a necessary basis for reciprocal and productive cooperation. That's something which it seems like you're stating the bleeding obvious, but it's something that has been entirely missing, as you've pointed out, from about 2017 in, in the most overt fashion um, under the Morrison government and obviously Turnbull as well. And so we've seen this huge deterioration of respect. It means there's, I guess, a bit of a loss of face for the Chinese if they try and reach out and not get an outcome that is desirable to them. And we have actually seen the new Chinese ambassador to Australia when he came over to Australia only recently when Morrison was still prime minister. 
you know, extend the olive branch, say, let's have a meeting. I want to try and reset relations. And Scott Morrison refused to meet. That was bizarre. Not bizarre. It was obscene. I mean, the ambassador from one of the great powers on earth wants to have a meeting with our prime minister. It's our prime minister's responsibility to meet him. The fact that he meets him doesn't mean that we agree with everything that China does. I mean, Australians aren't stupid. They read that for a sort of puffed up chest sort of bit of, it was bizarre. So, I mean, yes, the ambassador came. If you remember the minister, the number two in the Chinese embassy, people didn't agree with everything he said, but he he did the national press club. He went on Q&A to try and make these points that China was looking to reset the relationship. But he was sort of howled down by a chorus of our politicians in a very unconstructive, actively destructive way. The Chinese premier, the number two in the Chinese sort of government system, Li Keqiang, uh, he sent a very conciliatory note to the new prime minister, Albanese, when his election was confirmed as prime minister. I think the new government obviously doesn't want to be seen to be falling over itself to, to be sweet with China again. But I think an opportunity has already been missed by the new government not to acknowledge at least the sort of nature of the the overture from China and then address it quietly through our ambassador in Beijing rather than to say, you know, again, talk about Australian sovereignty. I can't remember Albanese's exact words, but they weren't. Mm. He, he didn't want to be attacked immediately, I think, by Dutton and others on the conservative side for appearing to appease China to to give in because there's been five years now where the media, particularly the Murdoch press, but not only the Murdoch press, have been writing about China in negative terms. They don't even say the Chinese government, which it is. They talk about the communist government every time. If every time the Chinese wrote about the Australian government and they called it you know, the Liberal National Coalition government, we'd think that was pretty odd. Well, the Chinese think it's pretty odd and and offensive. I think just constantly to be named as as the communist, the communist, the the communist conspiracy, the communist uh, whatever. We just need to moderate our our language. And as I said, Perhaps the very best things that some of our politicians could do is simply to shut up and leave it to the professionals to have the conversations quietly. I do think that our new foreign minister, Penny Wong, is a cut above her predecessor. I think she will be able to handle the nuance of language that's required in dealing with China much better. And I think she will. So although I think the first opportunity was missed to respond to the uh, Chinese Premier's overtures, I think we will find that in the months ahead, uh, it will improve and and they will find a way to, to start direct discussions at ministerial level again. 
I, I mean, I know that Graham Fletcher and his predecessor, Jan Adams, as our ambassadors in Beijing have been denied access at senior ministerial level, which is a, a terrible uh, position for us to be in. But while we'd like to say, or lots of our politicians like to say, it's all China's fault and China's changed, we have also changed and it is equally our fault. And that's really the point of the book that I was trying to make, that we say China under Xi Jinping has changed since, say, Jiang Zemin or Hu Jintao before him. But if you think we've changed since, not not just since Gough, but since Bob Hawke and Paul Keating, and for that matter, Malcolm Fraser, who traveled to China and was mm. very respectful, which is not to say that Malcolm thought that, that the Chinese system was, a, was one he wanted to have here. But we have to learn that just because we don't agree with someone doesn't mean it's appropriate to shout at them. Yeah, I do certainly agree that that was a missed opportunity with the Chinese Premier Li Keqiang. And I did see that after that letter that was sent to Anthony Albanese, apparently through the Chinese state media network Xinhua News, there's been a point to convey to Australia that China hopes that the 50th anniversary of Gough Whitlam's diplomatic recognition of China might be a kind of crucial moment to actually strengthen the relationship again, hopefully have a reset. Do you think that that has any likelihood? I mean, the fact that we've already seen three, four, five, you know, moments of different uh, people representing the Chinese government reaching out to the Australian government, not only the Morrison, but also Albanese. Like, surely that is a a very strong sign. It's a very strong sign, Amy. You're absolutely right. And the 50th anniversary, which comes up actually at the end of this year, is a perfect moment to do something visible and symbolic and um, positive. I've maintained relationships with friends in China, including at the Ministry of Culture, and I've been saying for the last couple of years that this anniversary is coming up and we need to think how it can be marked. They have had their hands tied, you know, that sort of Australia is in bad odour at the moment and have said, we, you know, there's not much we can do at the moment until the bigger issue is resolved, but they're waiting for it to be resolved. They want it to be resolved. It's in their interests for it to be resolved as it's in ours. And I hope whether it's a prime ministerial visit, whether it is some less political, but no less visible sort of third track conversation. uh, I'm beginning to have discussions here now about what we might do next year to reopen the very active cultural exchange programs that we've had with China over the last 10, 20, 30 years with two-way flow of, of artists and writers and journalists, you know, to see what we can get going again, because it's in our, it's in our own interest for it to happen. It's not, yeah. it's not rocket science. No, it certainly isn't rocket science. And one thing I recall you saying actually in a conversation with Linda Javen 
was you were talking about and reflecting on the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and its perception of itself and its particular role as a department. And you were pointing out that their view of themselves was that they're not a policy department, but more of a services delivery department, which to anyone who understands DFAT's role, I would have thought, you know, it's a bit jarring to hear that because usually the assumption is you have all these policy boffins working hard at their desks, coming up with strategic um, ideas of how to engage with different countries. So I wondered, do you think that that's still the case? And is there room then to change um, the public service and to try and shift some of the bureaucracy in favour of more engagement and more of a focus on policy and less on so-called service delivery? The previous secretary of the department was Frances Adamson, who's now the governor Mm. in South Australia. And she had before that been our ambassador in Beijing and a very capable and successful one. Uh, Her successor appointed by the Morrison government was someone with, a, I understand, a military background and a Pentecostal background who had no experience in the Department of Foreign Affairs and clearly had been put there to fulfill the whims of the previous prime minister. It's not for me to determine appointments in the public service, but my guess would be that Uh, their days as Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs will be numbered with the new foreign minister and that the department will begin to once again be positioned as, as very much a policy department. It's not just there to provide consular services to Australians who are uh, sick or arrested or whatever when they're traveling overseas. It is there to advise the government in a very sophisticated and informed manner how they might best improve relationships for our national advantage. That's their job. And we've we've had very, very good diplomats in that role in Beijing for a long time, very experienced people, usually with high language skills and a career interest in China and and uh, uh, Asia and Australia's relationship with them. And we need to go back to that. I personally think, and this is, this is a personal view, that when they combine the Department of Trade with the Department of Foreign Affairs uh, into the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, I think that has been a long-term error because... The symbolism of that has made the department much more transactional and less analytical. Uh, And I think that's a loss. I think we have lost some of the really fine analysts who used to be in the department. They were policy wonks. They, Mm. They read and thought and wrote, but that was sort of considered unproductive. Um, In fact, the good ones were very productive because they helped our politicians understand how they could manage the relationship better. When everything is just down to what are we selling and what are we buying, uh, it changes the nature of the relationship. So I would like to see more emphasis again on analysis and, and the sort of intellectual grunt of the department 
which certainly, I mean, in the old days, foreign affairs and treasury were the two big policy departments in the government. And I think we managed our external relations better when that was so. Yep, couldn't agree more. And one thing I wanted to focus on before we finish up was about this idea of sovereignty. It's just a word that's bandied about willy-nilly by pretty much every politician and national interest is another phrase that seems to get used or overused. But you talk about sovereignty in an interesting way because you say our sovereignty is indeed threatened, but not by an aggressive China. Rather, we ourselves have given it away to the United States. Gradually since World War II, but more recently in a rush with the Australia-United States ministerial consultations in Washington over the past decade and, of course, the September 2021 AUKUS Pact, which centred on a nuclear submarine deal, of which I'm sure we're all familiar. I just wanted to focus on AUKUS and Australia's relinquishing of sovereignty in such a substantial way under AUKUS, because obviously this is some kind of signal towards China that, oh, we need to contain you now. And as Paul Keating pointed out at the National Press Club, the submarines we have at the moment are for defence, not offence. And if we start integrating ourselves into the US military capability even more than we already are, we really are signing ourselves up for conflict. And that's something you also say. So I just wondered if you could reflect on AUKUS and I guess the signal that that is sending not only to China, but also to the rest of the world and ourselves. AUKUS, uh, which came out of the blue sort of for everyone, sent a whole range of signals. One is that somehow tying ourselves back to the 19th and 20th century Anglosphere of the United States and Great Britain was appropriate and relevant in an Asia-Pacific century. And that sent very weird signals across our region. The fact that we did it without informing our nearest neighbor and perhaps most important regional neighbor, Indonesia, that suddenly, oh, by the way, guys, we're going to have nuclear submarines cruising your waters. That was very badly managed. The, 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 the management of the French relationship, I don't need to uh, linger on. You know, I don't, I don't think I know. You know, that was <laughs> a catastrophe in terms of uh, our relationship with Western Europe, because with Macron, the head of the European Union, and us wanting a a free trade deal there, that, you know, is not in our economic interest. The French submarines were designed as a defensive submarine to protect our trade routes around Australia. To sign up for a, for a nuclear submarine, the benefit of which is that it can travel long distances in secrecy underwater and is designed really to be a, an additional squadron in support of the Americans in containing China was a very, from the Chinese perspective, an extraordinarily uh, brutal and, I think, wrong decision. Now, the government has tried to, to say it we're protecting our sovereignty. But in fact, we've signed up for a, a submarine that's nuclear powered when we have no nuclear industry. I mean, the way Morrison talked about it was so, uh, uh, you know, we're just basically going to buy the shell and the Americans will come and dump the engine in. We don't have to know how it works and they won't tell us. 
And anyway, they'll be they'll be up there in the South China Sea protecting us. I mean, that to me was appalling. It said that that we too want to be part of the American containment of China. That we we want to uh, be part of preventing China's quite proper aspirations to be a major regional power and and ultimately to be a major world power. That we're not interested in in the defence of Australia. We're signing up for an offensive role in an American containment and potential war with China. To me, that sent all the wrong signals. Paul Keating, whom you mentioned, he said years ago, and it's still fundamentally true, I think, he said, we have to define our defense not, not against Asia, but within Asia, and particularly Southeast Asia. Uh, I mean, if I were God and could could determine these things, I would be having Australia to work as hard as we could on qualifying to join ASEAN. Because our our you look at a map and you look at the Indonesian archipelago, it is a a brilliant umbrella across the north of Australia. That's our greatest security. So our security is to be found in Asia, not against Asia. So I think the AUKUS agreement has not assisted us in that regard. It said we're going to bypass Southeast Asia and we're going to have these long-range submarines that, that are designed to block China's own trade routes coming out through the South China Sea. And, and the Chinese, remember, are dependent on their sea trade because they're the, ma- the world's major exporter. They need that trade, you know, even more than we do. But the Americans like to think they can block that. Even in the, in the last couple of days, there's been criticism of China not attacking, but menacing an Australian spy plane off the coast of China. Why are we flying Australian spy planes off the coast of China? And who are we doing it for? I don't think Canberra's learning much, but the Americans might be. When the Chinese Navy had a ship in international waters, you'll remember Dutton talked about their aggressive action in having a ship in international waters. And yet we we get our knickers in a knot when the Chinese express displeasure about an Australian spy plane off the coast of China. Yes, it was in off the 12-mile zone, but I'm not sure what we're doing there and why we need to be there. So that's extending the AUKUS mm. discussion out. I had an uncle who died last year who, who was in the Australian Navy in the Second World War. And uh, he said in his mid-90s, he said, well, the good thing about AUKUS and, and the 40-year timeline to get these submarines is that it basically means we will never have a nuclear submarine. Because by the time we get them, you have to realize that underwater drones, unmanned drones will be patrolling the seas. And this thing that we we tout as our great uh, weapon uh, of defense or offense will be irrelevant and, and outmoded by the time we get it. So he said, I think of it as good news. It means we're never going to have a nuclear submarine. Um, that was a, an unusual point of view. 
But there's some truth in, in it, I think, that by in 40 years' time, I mean, while Dutton and Morrison were saying that the Chinese threat is immediate and tomorrow and, you know, our sovereignty is threatened, our defense uh, against it was 40 years away. I mean, it was a sort of nonsense announcement. And it was announced in a big hurry that suggested it was done again for domestic political purposes because they hadn't decided, do they want the American nuclear submarine? Do they want the British? nuclear submarine, you know, whose who's engine, whose weapons, whose whatever in it, oh, we'll, we'll take the next 18 months to think about that, uh, let alone how we're going to pay for it. Yes, and only informed labour at the 11th hour as well. And only informed labour at the 11th hour, yes. So there were so many things that, that said this smells to me. And I don't know what Britain thinks it's doing in the Pacific, you know, in the 21st century, it doesn't have a presence here, whereas the French, in fact, do. The French have a, a big presence uh, in New Caledonia. They've had, of course, a colonial history in Vietnam and, and other Tahiti, and were a much more, much more a Pacific power than the British have been. But suddenly, Boris, you know, we thought it looked good if, if we brought him in on the act. It made it look more plausible. I think the whole AUKUS thing will will probably fall apart over time. Yeah, well, I hope so. Yes. Um, that would be amazing. I love that explanation from your family member who's passed away because, uh, yeah, it makes a whole lot of sense. Just finally, now, Carillo, you just had one great line. Well, you have many great lines, actually, because I spent my life nodding throughout your whole book. But there was one that stuck out to me, and it's true, I think, especially in the context that you were writing it, which was in the, the Morrison government during our great diplomatic freeze, of which we still are semi under it. And you say, frankly, China has largely ceased to care about Australia. Politically, we have made ourselves irrelevant. Now, the fact that, as we've already referenced in this conversation, that China has shown an ounce of caring again is kind of miraculous, given that they truly did seem to not care at all during this many years long diplomatic freeze and these um, trade export bans and barriers to Australian trade. This is something that I think Australia seems to get perhaps confused by is that they think that because we talk about China all the time, that China thinks about us all the time. Um, And I guess... And they don't. (laughs) No, they don't. I just wondered if you could comment on that because it's so annoying that I, yes. you know, to me as well, that everyone thinks that China's hung up on us. Yeah, no, they're not. And and uh, we think we're a lot more powerful than we are. We're a middle power and we should behave like one. China represents 50% of the value of Australia's external trade, 50%. That's a hell of a lot. And it's several times larger than, you know, the, the next trading partners. Australia represents less than 5% of China's external trade. So, I mean, the government kept telling Australian companies to replace their China trade and kept telling Australian universities to replace their Chinese students uh, as though this could be done overnight when when it's 50% of the market. If China lost 100% of the Australian trade, and it won't because of iron ore, you know, it, 5% is a lot easier to replace than 50%. Uh, 
and they are building their connections across Central Asia to the Middle East and ultimately to Western Europe through the so-called Belt and Road, through high-speed rail, which is being built across the stands, and I think will go through probably through Afghanistan on the way to Istanbul. In a few years, you'll be able to get on a high-speed train out of Beijing and go through to the Mediterranean. We are not central to their thinking. I think the Chinese would like us to go back to the sort of role that we had before about 2017, where we said America is our strategic ally and China is our trading partner. We will deal in a more balanced way with both of you. We will not let ourselves be manipulated by either side. We've invested at horrible cost in America's wars that we shouldn't have, and the Chinese would probably like to see us not doing that anymore. They would like us to, to occupy a more neutral position, even if not in formal political neutrality, but to go back into a more balanced relationship with both of them. And frankly, so would I, uh, because it's in our national interest that we should do so. As I said at the beginning of this, China is the major regional power in the Asia Pacific. We have to learn to live with them. We don't have to like everything they do. I'll say that again. We can disagree and we can criticize them. Other governments do. The Japanese who have a, a much more brutal and tough history with China than we do, you know, they get on with them. And we have to learn to do so by speaking more quietly and diplomatically, by just paying a bit more attention and not doing everything that the Americans tell us to do. Uh, we don't have to accept the American position on everything, nor do we have to do their dirty work in the Pacific and be the sort of that unfortunate John Howard phrase, be the deputy sheriff in our part of the world. It's not a role that is conducive to a, a strong, secure and, and economically powerful Australia. And I know that the Chinese-Australians here will benefit from better relations, given that, as you point out, they've become the collateral damage in all of this. So I thank you so much for your time today, Carrillo. It's been really illuminating. And I hope that people can pick up your book, which I think is essential reading. It's called Dismal Diplomacy, Disposable Sovereignty, Our Problem with China and America, and it's out through Monash University Publishing. Thank you again, Carrillo. I really appreciate your Thank time Thank you, today. Amy. I've enjoyed the conversation. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Victorian Ombudsman Deborah Glass. Deborah, as you can tell from her title, is the Victorian Ombudsman. She obviously has a team around her working in her office here in the state of Victoria. She was appointed to a 10-year term, which began in March 2014, and she's also the first woman to serve in the role. 
before becoming Ombudsman, Deborah led criminal and misconduct investigations into police for the Independent Police Complaints Commission of England and Wales. And before that, Deborah became that organisation's deputy chair. And in 2012, she was awarded an Order of the British Empire for her service. Previous to that, she actually was raised in Melbourne and studied law at Monash University. Her career has taken her to many different countries, including Switzerland, Hong Kong and London. And I'll leave the rest for Deborah to fill in. But it is my great pleasure to welcome Deborah onto the show to discuss her role in Victoria and for us to get a better understanding of just what Deborah does in day to day life and in her working life, especially. So, hi there, Deborah, and thank you very much for joining us today. Good morning, Amy. It's a pleasure. Now, I uh, actually was really interested in the fact that you have travelled so much in your career. And I, I was watching a video that you did for some, I think they were perhaps VCE students talking about your role. And it seemed that when you were straight out of law school, you weren't quite sure what exactly you wanted to do, but you, once you got into a law firm, realised you didn't want to be in a law firm. So I wanted to, um, to also get a sense from you about how you ended up as the Victorian Ombudsman, because it does seem to be quite a, a different path or, or one that you wouldn't expect necessarily. Well, one of my messages to students is don't try to plan too much. I certainly didn't plan my career. I left Australia on a one-way ticket with a rucksack on my back, having decided I didn't want to be a lawyer. And um, my career journey is very much a process of, in some ways, working out what I didn't want to do uh, and rather than focusing on what I did. But it's also about being open to opportunity and, and I think also being true to your values, which sometimes you discover uh, in more detail as you journey through life. Yeah, well, I, I couldn't agree more because I thought I was going to be a dramaturge in the theatre and that definitely didn't wasn't what happened in the end, but I still enjoy the theatre. So, Deborah, one thing that I noted with the, the Victorian Ombudsman role is that it's it has a 10-year appointment term, which I mentioned in the introduction. It's a very long term for any job when you think about it, because um, obviously not many people would expect to be in the same role for 10 years. But it does make a lot of sense why you would make it a 10-year appointment in the sense of uh, minimising government interference in these type of independent appointments. And if, for example, a government wasn't happy with an outcome that you had um, suggested or provided that you would still remain in your position. Is that one of the main reasons why it's a 10-year term? And are there other reasons? reasons why it's such a, a solid 10-year role? Well, I think it's a great term. It's been in the legislation since, uh, I think, the 80s, the, the, actually, or, or the 90s. The, the second ombudsman was in his role for about 14 years, and they actually brought in the limitation after that. <laughs> so I think it was um, possibly a way of, of, of not wanting to, to, um, to have another um, very long-term ombudsman who, in many ways, if you do your job properly, you're a bit of a thorn in the side of the government of the day. Or as I like to tell um, uh, incoming members of Parliament, 10 years is two and a half times their term. Very, very true. And um, and it's something that I think it's great because you do provide that level of accountability and there does need to be a certain stability in these types of appointments. Let's talk a little bit about the Ombudsman because it is a title and a term that we have heard in many different contexts. There are a whole range of Ombudsmans in Victoria and even in Australia, but you're the Victorian Ombudsman. So I kind of wanted to get a sense from you about 
in particular where the ombudsman role comes from and then more specifically where this Victorian role comes from? Well, the term itself is Swedish. I don't know how many of your listeners are aware of this, but it, it, it comes from an old Swedish word that loosely translates to defender of the people. And it's a concept that's been around for arguably a couple of thousand years. You know, you could go back to the, the, the Tribune of the Plebs, who was an, an early kind of ombudsman. But what, what the, the, the ombudsman concept really goes back to the imbalance of power between the individual and the state. And it's been evolving over time. The, uh, the Swedish ombudsman has been around for a couple of hundred years. The Victorian ombudsman has been around for nearly 50 years. And probably the earliest ombudsman in our sort of immediate vicinity goes back to about the 1960s. So it, it's, um, it's a concept that has evolved with, I think, the increasing growth of bureaucratic decision-making and the recognition by government that there needs to be some sort of check on the power of the bureaucracy. And we, we all recognise this, don't we? You know, the, the, the inherent unfairness when you've got governments on one side making decisions about, you know, we, the people. And where do you go if you think that, that decision is not fair? Yes, absolutely. And and as you have pointed out, and as we've been discussing on this show for quite a while, there's the need for an ombudsman role for some of these particular issues. And then there's also, alongside that, also a role for bodies like the IBAC here in Victoria, the ICAC in New South Wales. And of course, we've seen a huge number of judges and other professionals advocating for a federal anti-corruption commission. So looking at things that aren't necessarily criminal, but might be seen as misconduct or corruption. So that's something which, you know, has been very much in the news at the moment. So I wonder, you know, whether people have been paying more attention to your role, given the greater public attention to this issue of integrity and accountability in government. This is a, a, a growing era of public concern. And if you look at it historically, ombudsmen have been around for a pretty long time, as I say, in Victoria, nearly 50 years. And that's true in, in almost every state and territory in Australia. I mean, they, they've had parliamentary ombudsmen uh, since, in, in most cases, the 70s. The, um, the concept of the Anti-Corruption Commission is much newer, and they have been around for far less time than ombudsmen. They do an incredibly important role, and it is important the ombudsman and the Anti-Corruption Commission, I think, work well together, as I do with IBAC. The, the boundaries can be quite difficult to navigate when you're talking about corruption or maladministration. You know, what's corruption and what's, you know, what, what is a sort of subform of corruption? Uh, you know, what, you know, what's wrong and what's criminal are, are not always easy to determine. So a lot of the work in my office comes from IBAC. You know, they, they, they look at, um, they're the kind of clearinghouse for corruption matters, for public interest complaints. So one of my roles, and this is only one of them I, I stress, is to deal with matters referred to me by IBAC. And it's important that we work pretty closely together to ensure that the matters coming to us are dealt with as effectively as possible. Yeah, well, that's a really interesting point. And it's something that it came up as a question for me because I saw as an example, you know, a parliamentarian make a referral to both IBAC and the Victorian Ombudsman, yourself, about an issue around uh, allegations of corruption within Vic Forests. And I wondered, you know, if 
if, for example, that does happen and a parliamentarian is concerned about a government agency, does IBAC or yourself ever, I guess, signal to the public in a transparent way that you have taken up the case? Or do we only find out at the end um, if there happens to be an outcome and then you present the report to the public? It really depends. When we're dealing with the, the public interest complaint legislation, that is very restrictive around what can be disclosed and when. So if something is determined to be a public interest complaint, I don't announce it uh, and I, I may well investigate it entirely in private and it's also possible that a report is concluded entirely in private. I will look at, to see whether there is a public interest in, in publishing something and on balance, I might deal with 50 of these in a year and I will table a very small number of reports. So every case needs to be considered on its merits. Uh, you know, there are matters that I may well discuss with IBAC, that may, but, but there are so many considerations that apply to whether something is actually put into the public domain. What, what you see in the public domain, whether it's me or IBAC, or you know, indeed probably any integrity agency, is usually a very small fraction of the overall work we do. Yes, I certainly had a feeling. And Deborah, one other thing that is quite interesting, and it's certainly very exciting for the legal nerds out there, is that the Victorian Ombudsman, yourself, you have the powers of a royal commission, except to say that you don't hold hearings in public, which IBAC can do so in some circumstances. Correct. Um, yeah. yeah. I wonder, have you ever used your powers of the royal commission and what kind of circumstances would you use them in? I use them in, in uh, most of my formal investigations. So, I mean, let me give you a... a, a sort of sense of the range of what I do. I mean, I, I, my office probably gets, well, certainly gets tens of thousands of contacts from, from the public every year. Now, quite a few of those are matters that we can't deal with. So, you know, we might say to them, I'm really sorry, but we can't deal with your telephone bill. There's another office that does that. But if we narrow them down, there, there are in the vicinity of about 5,000 matters a year that we deal with through our inquiry powers. We also have conciliation powers. That's quite new. So, you know, they're, they're matters that we might also help people to seek to resolve their, their complaints with um, their local council or some government agency. But a, a, um, a much smaller subset of what comes into us will result in a formal investigation. And it's in those investigations that I have the Royal Commission powers. And in most of them, I'm likely to use them. So, you know, that might include involve issuing a, a summons to, for, for a, a, a potentially reluctant witness to, to, to appear. It might involve production of documents that I need for the purpose of investigation. They're, they'd be the most common of the, of the Royal Commission powers I'm likely to use. Well, it's interesting as well in the sense that, um, you know, you've got those very strong powers that can, I guess, ensure that you're getting the right witness testimony and that anyone reluctant can come forward and provide you this essential information. But there's also a really interesting uh, part of your role that I thought was particularly excellent, and that is that you have own motion powers where you can actually initiate your own investigations and uh, you're not necessarily just waiting around for a referral, although that they are quite critical, I understand, but that you do have that ability and flexibility to, to start things yourself. I do, and that's an incredibly important part of my role. So again, I, I, I run a relatively small office, so there is no way I can deal with every, every matter that, 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 uh, that might be interesting 
for own motion investigation. So I need to be pretty judicious about the, the, the topics I pick. But you will also, they're the ones I'm, I'm likely to announce and, um, and I will then table the report in Parliament. So you'll see every year there'll, there'll, there'll be several examples of, of what I'm looking at on my own motion. Currently, uh, for instance, I'm looking at housing, public housing complaints. And that's something that I intend to, to table a report on uh, in, I hope, the, the, the very near future. Well, I look forward to hearing about it. Public housing is something that certainly came up during the pandemic when people were stuck in their own houses uh, for a very long period of time. And I know that some of the, the discussion around your role has certainly made the media in some of those issues, human rights and fairness issues that arose during the pandemic, like the lockdown in the public housing towers and also uh, the border closures between Victoria and New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia, people getting stuck in other states and then uh, not being able to come back for prolonged periods of time. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and what you perceive to be some of the human rights issues that arise in your role, perhaps using some of those as an example. Yes, if I reflect on the last couple of years, it is quite extraordinary that um, probably three of my biggest reports were tabled at a time when we were working remotely and in deep lockdown. So I'm quite proud we were able to deliver that. But the, the first of those, as you, as you rightly point out, was the uh, report I did into the hard lockdown of the public housing towers in um, July 2020. I think we all recall that, um, that some of those really distressing scenes of people who, in the high-rise towers, surrounded by police, unable to to leave, uh, many of whom told us that they only found out about about this um, when they they're unable, when the, the towers are surrounded by, by police. Uh, and given that so many of those people came from refugee backgrounds where of real trauma, the the, um, the the treating of this as a security operation, or certainly what seems to be a security operation, rather than uh, the, the, than uh, what was a public health crisis, was um, undoubtedly re-traumatising for many of those people. So I did conclude in that investigation that the hard lockdown of those towers without notice that was not taken on public health advice and I stress that, the intention to lockdown was public health advice. The lockdown without notice was not. That's what I concluded was a breach of the human rights of the 3,000 people who lived in those towers. And it's interesting when we're talking about human rights, because I know, you know, a bill of human rights is, you know, something we talk about or a charter. Uh, and there are different definitions of human rights, depending on the state or country or jurisdiction that you're in. How do you apply this understanding? Is this partly your own personal judgment? And what level of personal interpretation is there when you're looking at matters of human rights and fairness? Well, we have a charter in Victoria, and we're very fortunate in that regard. I mean, Victoria is one of the few places in Australia that, 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 has, that has legislation that embeds human rights in official decision-making, and that's incredibly important. So what, um, what we look at there, what we looked at in, in the public housing towers was what consideration was given to human rights. Human rights is almost invariably a balancing act. So it is it's not absolute. It's possible to limit people's rights uh, when it's reasonably necessary to do so. And 
the the lockdown itself of the towers would not on its face have been a breach of people's human rights. But what do you look at with human rights is, is um, were there less restrictive options available that would have respected people's rights? And in this case, there were. This lockdown was the only one, both before or since, that was made with no notice. We, we were all subject to lockdowns over the last few years. Every one of us knew that we had some time before the lockdown came into effect to go out and get our supplies of food or baby supplies or medicines or the things we needed to, um, to get us through. And that didn't happen. So it was that... It was that lack of, uh, of notice, that, that um, the, the, the inability to acknowledge that, 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 that um, there was another way of doing it that fundamentally confirmed for me that um, people's rights were breached. So it is a combination of what does the law say, you know, what does the Charter of Human Rights say? Uh, and yes, I, I, will, I will bring my judgment to that. It seems like there's some common sense and, you know, what is reasonable consideration in that. And often common sense isn't that common, which is why I've called my show Uncommon Sense. <laughs> you are too uh, right about that, I'm afraid. But yeah, yeah. A, lot of my, a lot of my role is about what's sensible, you know, what is common sense, what is reasonable. And, and let's talk about the, on that subject, I mean, let, let's look at yeah. the, the border closures, because that, you know, the other report that, that you mentioned the, um, and that's where, similarly, our, our consideration of, of human rights and executive decision-making was really important. Now, what we saw then was there, there was, in fact, a, a far better consideration of human rights there. There was a real consideration as opposed to a token consideration, a, a kind of tick the box to say you've considered human rights, you know, which we sadly we, we, we see all too often in um, official life. But no, I think that you know there was some learning there. Mm. But um, where where the common sense came in was in some of the decision making we saw. So early on, when the borders were closed, it made some sense to, to impose a, a very hard line on um, requests for exemption. People who were stuck on the other side of the border and wanted to to cross. Well, it, it was understandable that um, you're going to be very very uh, restrictive in, 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 in who you allow and how you do it. But what we found in, in that investigation was that that incredibly restrictive view simply didn't ease, even as the situation changed. So you got to a point where there were as many cases in Victoria as there were in New South Wales that um, the vaccine mandates had, had come into effect. And you had you had people stuck on the other side of the border who were fully vaccinated, who were quite willing to to um, self isolate for you know, on their farms for a couple of weeks on on or as long as needed, if they could cross the border. Who were still being told that, that that it was too great a risk to allow them to cross. Now there was a really obvious lack of common sense in some of that decision making, and there were decisions there that were simply inhumane and heartless. That's true. It's um, it does need to be responsive to the situation, and you point out it was it was very rigid. Deborah, I I've noticed that on a, a very similar topic, uh, when the pandemic bill had been drafted, that you had expressed concerns over a lack of independent scrutiny, you know, embedded within the bill and how the the pandemic laws might operate. 
I was really curious about that because I'd often thought that perhaps the ombudsman's role would be a kind of post facto thing. So once the bill is passed, then if there are bad consequences from a bill, uh, you might end up dealing with those consequences. But in this situation, it seemed that you were potentially able to flag some concerns before something problematic might have been passed and therefore an improvement might be made you know, before we ended up way down the track with any issue. I wonder, is that something that happens very often and are you able to do so in that softly, softly, just high over here, could you consider this um, issue way? Well, I'm not sure anybody would, would think that I did that softly, softly, but um, uh, it's not. It's certainly the case that we get consulted on a fairly regular basis by, by governments about reform proposals. And, um, and we provide um, submissions and feedback fairly uh, regularly on, uh, on on what's going on. The, um, I mean, what happened in in that instance was um, not it was was really a, my office providing feedback on a proposal that reflected matters we'd previously investigated. We followed learning from the the reporting to the lockdown of the, of the public housing towers. So we did have a view on on things that we thought were important and that would would make a difference in in, um, in legislative reform. So I think what was unusual in that case was that it, was that it, it, it began to matter. It's not uncommon for us to, to be asked, but it's relatively uncommon for it to make a difference. Mm, mm, that is a very good point. And, yeah, it's certainly – it kind of raised another issue for me because on this show we've been talking about the Health Legislation Amendment Information Sharing Bill 2021, which is a very charismatic uh, title – but essentially, the Australian Privacy Foundation has great concerns because it's basically going to be a state-based digital health record of pretty much all of your records, which all Victorians can't opt out of. And uh, I know that you know our listeners have been concerned and a few crossbenchers have been concerned, but it was something that I thought, would we have to wait till the law was passed to even complain if we wanted to complain to the Victorian Ombudsman about how we weren't able to opt out of a process like that? It's... Um... As a general rule, you can't complain about a government policy uh, or, or or a law. <laughs> it, it's uh, that's what what um, the, the way to deal with policies that you think are wrong or laws you think are wrong are, are, are really to go back to the provisions themselves and to say we disagree with this, and ultimately they'll develop policies in accordance with what they think is going to work at the ballot box and 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 with their in line with the, with the you know the way governments and, and oppositions and parties develop policies in all kinds of circumstances. So it, it's um, it's not it's, if somebody came to us and said you know we, we just you know we don't like this, this particular piece of legislation, mm-hmm. then what if it was based say, on human rights grounds though? Would that be you know not the, not that just we don't like it, but because we think it you know infringes human rights? If there's a circumstance where people think that their human rights are the Influence. So there's some act that, that, that a government official or you know, some somebody out there is doing that that, that they feel is is, um, is an infringement. Then we could certainly look at that, and, and we may well make recommendations for change as a result of of an investigation into something like that. But it um, it's not something that I could anticipate in advance. It's, mm. It's more a byproduct of, of the work I do rather than something that that, that, that I would directly get involved in. I mean, mm. you, know, the, you know, there are law reform commissions and, and others who, who are much more directly involved in 
in considering whether policies are right or, or, or and need change. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for explaining that. One of the things that we've discussed, obviously, is state government, but you also do apparently have jurisdiction over local government. Am I correct? Yes. No, well, local councils, all 79 local councils in Victoria are are, are part of my jurisdiction. And they keep me pretty busy, I have to say. (laughs) I was going to say that is pretty big. Yeah, well, it's a tier of government that everybody has some kind of relationship with. So it's not surprising. Everybody has some... Some, something to say about their local council, good or bad. And um, we spend a lot of time not only dealing with complaints, but also work in my office to try to help local councils do it better. I do remember seeing an interview with you in my research about, for example, uh, parking tickets, which do seem to be, you know, one of those talkback radio gripes of many people anyway. But there oh, did it- seem to be, yeah, a kind of quite significant uh, investigation you you uh, conducted where you discovered that the decision-making over parking fines was being undertaken largely by subcontracted organisations or companies. And so essentially um, there was a kind of outcome for some of the people who had complained about their parking fines. Oh, very much so. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to recall. I think I've lost track of the number of reports I've, I've, uh, I've produced that, that are into parking fines in some, some manner. And there, there have been a few. So absolutely, I, I do look at the, the systemic issues and, mm. and, and we look at individual complaints as well. The, I mean, if it wouldn't be fair to expect somebody to, to go to court to complain about their, their parking fine, then it's the kind of case that we would take on because we, we can deal with with complaints about fines, but I've got a staff of about 100. I mean, if, I, I simply don't have the capacity to deal with every complaint about, it, about parking fines in the state of Victoria. <laughs> but, but I am alert to the systemic issues that come out from parking fines. And, um, yes, you, 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 you give, there have been a few examples. I looked at um, unfair processes in a particular council around disability parking permits at, at one point. Uh, I've looked at the, the way some councils outsourced internal reviews into parking fines and concluded that that also was um, was wrong. And I did an investigation quite recently that, that involved um, the City of Melbourne's um, a handing out of, of parking fines in, in situations, for example, where they were using the PayState app. I don't know whether you, some of your listeners will recall this, you know, where, where an O and a zero get confused and, and people have complained oh, yes. that they thought they put this in correctly and, and they didn't and they received fines. So we, we've... Um, spent a lot of time, and it has been really quite a big part of my job, trying to deal with unfairness in some local government practices. I think, um, to an artisan, quite successfully. We've seen some real change in those areas, and on the whole, councils have been responsive to my recommendations. Well, that's good to hear. It's interesting that we are reaching the latter part of your term, so there's about two and a half years, I guess, of the, the rest of your appointment. And I wonder... Less, actually. Oh, really? Well, that's even sadder, I'm sure, for you, because it sounds like it's something you're very passionate about. And I, I wanted to get a sense of what you have been particularly proud of and, and also what you hope people might leave with understanding your role and, and if they ever wanted to complain to you, what you want to impart to them most forcefully. Well, I want people to understand that the office isn't just about the big reports that generate headlines 
the referrals from Parliament are the ones about politicians that are more likely to be the ones you read about. Every day, my staff are dealing with online complaints and taking calls from the public about their day-to-day problems with the public sector, whether that's their local council, whether it's an agency like VicRoads or the State Revenue Office or any one of your WorkSafe, any any one of of, of about a 1,000 departments and agencies uh, that that, that we can deal with complaints about. And we, we can't help everybody, but every single complaint matters. Every single complaint is feedback to us and to the agencies they're making it about. And every complaint plays its part in improving public administration. So I think what I would want people to understand is that complaints matter, that feedback matters, that um, whether we can help resolve the complaint or not, and and we try wherever possible to do so, that um, people should, should, should not be shy about making themselves heard. It is important to not to put up with a situation you think is unfair. If you think that that, that um, you're, you know, that this this balance of power, this imbalance of power, is working against you, and, and, and there is you know, that, that somebody is being unfair, unreasonable as a result, and it's something you know where there is some constructive solution that um, we might help you find, then come to us, make your complaint. The, the, the cases that I'm proudest of, actually, are very often the ones that don't make the headlines, where we get the letters or, or the emails and the calls that say, thank you so much, you know, for, for, for resolving that, for helping us out. I got my money back. Um, you know, this, uh, I got the, the council finally to talk to me. All these things that, that, that have been you know, on my mind for so long. Isn't that wonderful? It's finally been fixed. Yeah, I th- absolutely agree. It is those kind of small things and the feedback you get person to person, certainly for me in my work as well. Deborah, I really do appreciate you taking the time to explain what you've been doing in your term so far and also to outline to us you know, what it looks like you'll be doing for the, the rest of it. And I hope that that means that people do feel confident to go to your website so that they can complain about uh, something if it's relevant to your area of jurisdiction. And even if they're not sure, I'm sure they can call or put in the complaint and find out uh, whether it does fit your jurisdiction. So, Absolutely. Uh, if in doubt, get in touch. Uh, I will leave you with the complaints line, in fact. It's 1-800-806-314. Or get onto our website, which is you know, ombudsman.vic.gov.au. And it's... Uh, I hope you'll find a lot of helpful information there. If in doubt, give us a call and um, we'd be really happy to help. Well, thank you for making it very accessible to everyone listening, Deborah. And I wish you all the very best with your very important work and can't wait to see what um, eventually comes to light with your future reports. Thanks, Amy. Good to talk. You too. I've been speaking with Victorian Ombudsman Deborah Glass OBE and we've just been talking about her role and the office of the Victorian Ombudsman. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.